Well, Pat Rebar tried to tell you about what happened at the jail this week, but you could, if you were sitting as close as I was, you could tell he was too emotional to do it. He had tears in his eyes and was choked up about it. So uh, I'll just explain to you why he couldn't uh, explain himself and why he was emotional about it. And uh, just to say it was a great weekend. There were about 30 men. How many of you men were there? Some, some of you? Some of you guys see that hand? <laughs> a bunch of you men were there. About 30 of our men were there Friday night at the Omaha Correctional Center, Friday night, Saturday morning, Saturday afternoon. And uh, it was just a great, great reason for us to praise God. It really was overwhelming. It was one of the best places I've preached in for a long time. Um, let me tell you the story just a little bit before we get to what we're going to talk about this morning, just so you get an idea of what happened so you can praise God too. Uh, I don't know what the, the, the list is, but we're on like a maybe a 10-year waiting list or maybe longer than that to get into the jail. I don't know all the facts, but these are just the, the gist of it can't get in. Uh, church gets to go in there once a year and put on this seminar, and uh, so we're going to wait 10 years. But because we have enough men going into that correctional center, meeting with groups of men, doing Bible studies, uh, there were enough uh, people putting pressure, if you will, on the system to say, get Omaha Bible Church in now that they let us come in, you know, 10 plus years early. And so that was a huge privilege and a huge, huge praise. And so then some 30 of us go there on Friday night, not really know what's going, going to happen there. Um, so we go in, and Casey's, you know, disassembled the drums one piece at a time, so we all are carrying a different chunk of the drum set in. And we go in, and we're in this rectangular concrete room. The drums are set up, and it was so loud, you couldn't even believe how loud the drums were. God was glorified in that, I'm sure. It was very Psalm 150-ish. Uh, and then we've got, you know, uh, guitar, John played the guitar, Pat played the keyboard, a couple of the inmates um, who have pretty interesting stories were also up front playing the bass, playing the guitar, and uh, it was amazing. 120 inmates and about 30 OBC guys crammed in this room, and uh, we could probably all take a, a lesson or two from these guys and their singing. Um, you know, I thought I was, I was waiting for Johnny Cash to walk in. I thought it was Folsom Prison Blues like Christian style. And I had my black leather motorcycle boots on, but I wasn't ready to sing Johnny Cash songs. I mean, it was just one of those times where you think, this is, this is absolutely amazing. And then to be able to preach the gospel, to equip believers and challenge unbelievers, and then to have our men interacting with these guys. And uh, then the second day, also the same thing. And then small groups. And then the, the yesterday afternoon... Uh, it really, really was encouraging and really was amazing. And I know some of the guys that don't go on a regular basis uh, have said, how can I go on a regular basis now? And uh, if you have any interest at all, um, we would love to get in there next year. We're supposed to wait, I don't know how long now, 20 more years? Um, let's continue to impact places like that with God's Word so that those who are there are hungry enough that they make the right kind of demands. Bring us back the Bible guys. That's what we want to have happen. It really was, really was awesome. And by the way, when John sang that song, I think he got about three words out of his mouth and then everyone in the whole room was singing. So we all have some learning to do. <laughs> but it really was awesome. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank you for the weekend and thank you for what you've done in that place. Uh, Lord, I thank you even for those who are here as members of Omaha Bible Church who used to be there. And uh, just pray for other men who are there who will be there for the rest of their life. That they would have a good and godly ministry that exalts Christ. And for those men who will get out, that they would have a good and godly ministry who exalt, that exalts Christ as well. You are an amazing God, and we would simply ask for more. More opportunities, more privileged opportunities to preach Christ and Him crucified. God, help us to keep the message simple so that it would be your message, the message about your great son and the salvation that is found in him. What a great message of hope that is. In Jesus' name, amen. If you just listen to these words and, and listen carefully, this is what God says. He says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another. Again, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another. 
I have a list of reasons why we would talk about the Protestant Reformation today and tonight. But the ultimate reason why we would talk about the Protestant Reformation today and tonight is because of what God says there. I am the Lord. That is my name. Conclusion. I will not give my glory to another. Paraphrase. I don't share. Why? Because I am God and there is no other God. And so I expect to be treated like God. And you say, what does that have to do with the Protestant Reformation? As sinners, which would include all of us, everything we seem to touch gets tainted with sin. And even though God says we're sinners and we could never, ever, ever earn His favor because we're sinners, because He's perfect and has perfect standards, we try and we try and we try. Even though He says, this is My Son in whom I am well pleased. He's never said that about anyone. This is My Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. Even though He says that He loves us so, even though we're sinners, He has His Son come and die a sinner's death on the cross. And thereby, as we've been seeing in Romans, perfectly and completely satisfying His just wrath against sin. And even though He says, believe in My Son and you will not perish. Even though He says salvation is by grace through faith in Christ, period. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, you've been saved by grace through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Even though all of those things are are shouted at us lovingly from heaven, we keep trying and we keep trying and we keep trying to somehow say the cross isn't enough, the righteousness of Christ isn't enough, the resurrection isn't enough, and we have to do something to earn favor with God. And my dear friends, As soon as we get to that point, which we're at so often, even though we might not realize it, we are, in effect, stealing glory from God. God says, this is my son. He did everything. You can do nothing. Trust in him and him alone. And we say, we like Jesus and we'll do it. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another. When we say it's Jesus and us, we're doing it, and God gets some glory and we get some glory. It all comes back to passages like Isaiah 42, verse 8, the passage I read. This morning we're talking about the Protestant Reformation and some key biblical truths, five key biblical truths that were recovered at the Protestant Reformation. Ultimately, we're doing this because in recovering them, by the grace of God, there was a recovery of the glory of God, giving God all of the credit. And by the way, the fifth biblical truth we'll look at this morning is this issue of the glory of God. Now, I say recovered because these things were not invented 500 years ago. We do not trace our history back to the Protestant Reformation and stop there. We trace our history back to uh, Jesus Christ. In fact, we trace our history even before Christ because the Bible has been talking about the coming of Christ long before He ever even came. And so please remember, we're not saying our religion started with the Reformation. We're going to say our religion started when God was gracious and provided a solution to our sin. And so we're going to take this back to the Bible time and time again. The glory of God is the ultimate motivation today. There are a couple of secondary motivations. Let me just mention them before we get to the five. Another motivation would be I really am burdened for us as a church. I'm burdened as a pastor that we remember that we as Christians are not disconnected from history. In other words, I'm burdened and I'm afraid sometimes we act as though, as Bible Christians, that we don't care about history or that our movement is ahistorical. And that is not true. 
History is very important. And we can be thankful and praise God that there's been a long line of godly men that can be traced back throughout history. And we're connected with them. Now, they are not our authority. But they are brothers and sisters in Christ who God used strategically at different times to recover His glory and give it back to Him. So remember, church history is not our authority. I used to have a professor, a historical professor, who would always say, and I'm thankful, and say, you can prove anything with church history. The good, the bad, and the ugly. You can prove anything. So don't have history be your authority. My sermon outline today, I hope, is not your authority. But when I say, please turn in your Bibles to, and we look at a passage, there we're going to see our authority, and ultimately we're tracing it back to that. But we love the Protestant Reformation because it is one of the key times in history where God used sinners like us to recover His glory and give it back to Him. Finally, let me just give a qualifier and say, I am not standing before you saying that the Reformers were perfect. I'm not standing before you saying that they had it all figured out with all the right motives, with all the right attitudes. I am not saying that in a million years, just as we couldn't say that about ourselves. But God uses sinners strategically at times to get things resorted out. Ready to go? Five biblical truths tied to the Reformation, recovered at the Reformation, and they are the five solas of the Reformation. The five solas taken from the Latin word alone. Easy sermon outline because these are what are so commonly tied to the Reformation. The five solas, the five alones. We all know what sola is even though we don't speak Latin, even though we don't study in Latin, most of us. Because we know what a solo is, it's someone singing alone. Someone flying alone, whatever it might be. Well, the solas are the alones of the Reformation. Those things that are hammered out, that, that recover and hold on to in relationship to Christ and His gospel. So the five solas of the Protestant Reformation that draw us back to the gospel that we so often neglect. We'll look at Scripture being our sole authority. We'll look at Christ being our sole Savior who did it all for us. We'll look at how we're saved only by grace. We'll look at how we're saved only through faith in Christ. And we'll look at ultimately how all of those other four point toward where I started, the glory going only to God. Because where there are absent the first four, or any of the first four, you won't have all of the glory going to God. And you know you're on the wrong path if not all of the glory is going to God. Let's jump in right away. Number one, sola scriptura. Sola scriptura from Latin meaning alone scripture. Well, we'll reverse that. Scripture alone. This is what has been referred to as the formal principle of the Reformation. The formal principle of the Reformation. And that's because it stands at the very beginning and it gives the form, it gives the direction to all that Christians affirm. That the Bible is our sole authority. Let's put it in the positive light. That the Bible is the sufficient Word of God. It is everything that we need to have when it comes to authority. It is in the Scripture. It comes back to Scripture for all we need, as theologians have said, for faith and practice. Put negatively, we don't need any other equal or competing authorities. If the Bible is our ultimate authority, then we don't need any other competing authorities. As someone has put it, therefore not the Pope, the church, traditions, church councils, subjective feelings, anything else. The Bible is the ultimate and unrivaled authority. This is why Martin Luther, after he posted his 95 theses on the castle church at Wittenberg, this is why after he was called to give an account and tried, this is why after he said, I need more time to think about it under the pressure, and came back the next day after praying, said this famously, unless I am convinced by Scripture and plain reason, 
I do not accept the authority of the popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to, do, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God, help me. So far, I've not offered you any good reason to believe this. Sola Scriptura. But if you would turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy 3.16, you find the reason to believe that Scripture and Scripture alone is what we have as our ultimate authority. Now please, hear this. The Bible acknowledges other authorities. It even acknowledges church authority. It even acknowledges government authority. It acknowledges parental authority. But all of those, or each of those, falls under the authority of God's Word. And what God's Word says about each one of those is ultimate authority. So they are all subject to Scripture. Now, as you are turning to 2 Timothy 3.16, I just want to add a footnote and, and acknowledge and remind you, these aren't issues we're just dealing with in the past. It's not just that, you know what, way back then in the dark ages, they had gotten to the point where the Bible was seen as a authority and authority, and then they added popes, and they added church councils, and they added all these other things. But you know what, that, let's let bygones be bygones, because we've moved past that now. Not only have we not moved past that, we're still fighting that battle, if you will, with Rome, that it's the Bible and, ultimately that means the Bible under, we're still fighting that battle, but now, now we're confused about it too as evangelicals. Now we're, we're beyond thinking the Bible is sufficient, even though we'll say the Bible is sufficient, even though we'll say it in our doctrinal statements. But if we really believe the Bible is sufficient, why on earth then do we think that if we're going to do effective outreach and evangelism, we're going to go to the Bible and we have to have slick marketing? Why in the world do we then think that if we're really going to grow spiritually, we need the Bible and pop psychology. Or the Bible and God talking to me directly in a mystical experience. Or why do we need the Bible and who knows what for effective preaching? See, we struggle with this issue too. I don't think we believe in sola scriptura. I don't think we believe the Scripture and Scripture alone is what we need. And so this is an issue for us. Well, let's see what the Bible says. 2 Timothy 3.16. Notice very carefully what it says. All Scripture is inspired by God, literally God-breathed, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Stop. Does that verse teach the sufficiency of Scripture. Does that verse teach sola scriptura? And the answer is, no, it doesn't. It most certainly doesn't. It teaches that the Bible is the Word of God. It's God-breathed. You want to be fancy? It's theopneustos. It's one Greek word that comes from the mouth of God. It teaches the Bible is the Word of God. Great, great text when it comes to that. But that text doesn't teach sola scriptura. If you think that that's the foundation for your commitment, you're on the wrong track. You say, what are you doing, Pat? You're not, you're not supporting your argument very well. Well, because I know how others think and I want you to be able to think. I'm driving down the road one day listening to my radio. It was a long time ago. I think we had the Toyota Tercel. What year was that? 1990 Toyota Tercel. That was a good car. Anyway, floored it every time I ever drove it just to go 30. <laughs> anyway, I'm driving down the road and I'm, I'm listening to a radio station uh, put out by someone who would deny sola scriptura and they're talking about how to evangelize evangelicals and how to dialogue with people like you and people like me. And they're saying, you know what? The Bible doesn't teach sola scriptura. It most certainly doesn't teach that the Bible is sufficient. And so the next time you're talking to your evangelical friend, your Protestant friend, you need to challenge him on it and say, where does the Bible teach your blessed doctrine of sola scriptura? 
And the man said, they'll probably have you turn to 2 Timothy 3.16. That's where I would start. And he said, then you need to read it with them and see that, oh yes, it teaches the Bible as the Word of God and we, we, we would believe that. But it doesn't teach, and it doesn't teach anywhere, the guy said, that the Scripture alone is sufficient. And it's at that point in time, you know, I want to roll my sleeve up and reach inside of the radio and grab the guy by the neck and say, you are a deceiver. Why would I want to do that? Because I have anger issues. Now I have clothing issues. I have wardrobe issues. Never said that before in my life. Because if you keep reading, what does it say in verse 17? So that the man of God, used there as an official term for a pastor, but he's going to teach the people this, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for, what's the word? The guys in the jail did way better than you. Let's try it again. It says, adequate, equipped for what? Every good work. If that's not a statement of sufficiency, a claim to sufficiency, then nothing is. It will equip you for every good work. That's a sola word. The Bible without any question, now you can reject it, but the Bible without any question teaches sola scriptura. It teaches that the Bible is the sufficient authority to equip you for every good work. Without question, it does. And that's good. Because now I don't have to live my Christian life based upon emotions, good or bad. I don't have to base my Christian life based upon you. As nice as you might be, you're not perfect. I don't have to base my Christian life on church history. I don't have to base my Christian life upon my own personal impressions. I can base my, my Christian life. We, we, can, we can do our best with the help of God's grace to base the life of Omaha Bible Church upon something that is perfect, that doesn't change, that is ultimately authoritative, it's Scripture. The Bible does teach sola scriptura. It does right there. Thankfully, the Reformers were used strategically by God to go back to this matter of clinging to and holding to the ultimate unchanging authority that can be trusted. It's the Scripture. Someone wiser uh, than myself delineated this rather simply. They said, number one, the Reformers did this in putting the Bible in common language. Putting the Bible in the vernacular of the people. What did Luther want to do? Luther wanted to take the Bible and translate it into German so people could actually read the Bible themselves. Getting back to Scripture, not what they're told Scripture says. So the Reformers did us a great service in that. Secondly, they did us a great service in getting back to expository preaching. Getting back to actually preaching the text of Scripture. And we certainly see this model, even though he was an imperfect man just like Luther, with Zwingli. We see this thirdly modeled, getting back to straightforward Bible interpretation. Reading it in context, seeing that words have meaning in context. To be fancy, getting back to grammatical, historical interpretation, taking it at face value like you would another document. And we see this most masterfully in the Reformation in John Calvin. Preaching the Bible expositionally, yes, but writing his commentaries, taking the Bible at face value, as many words as he, yes, had. A great, great benefit to us. You know, when you look at church history and you watch the line of church history and you see where great things have happened and where you're encouraged, oh yes, you're embarrassed along the way, but where you are encouraged reading church history over and over again, it's where they get back to Scripture. Because Scripture cuts through the darkness and through the fog and now we can actually know who God is and we can know what He says and we can actually honor Him and glorify Him as we put ourselves under His authority, which gets back to the glory of God. I'm so thankful. And I want to be that kind of Christian in my life. As we seek to be current, modern reformers, if you will, I want to continue to, to, to give that clarion call and say, we got to get back to the Bible! And not just say we got to get back to the Bible, because in a sense everybody's saying that. How about actually preaching the Bible? How about actually trying to do evangelism based on what the Bible says? 
knowing fully that we won't succeed and we won't be perfect as none of the reformers were. But I, I invite you. I hope the sermon, I hope our study together ignites you and, and, and says, yeah, remember to, to, to your dying day, back to Scripture, back to Scripture, back to Scripture. That's the best way you can help people. It's the best way you can help yourself, but ultimately the best way to glorify God because you're submitting to Him and to His authority, which acknowledges Him as the King, which gives Him what? Pretend like you're in jail. It gives Him glory, yeah. Thank you, Ed. God loves you and I have a wonderful plan for your life. All right, let's move on. I don't want to move on. I just want to stay right here, but let's, let's move on. Traditions are fine, yes, but they submit to Scripture ultimately. Number two, second key uh, reality reaffirmed or recaptured or rediscovered at the Reformation was solus Christus. Solus, S-U-L-U-S, because of, just because of grammar. Solus Christus, which might mean what? It's Christ alone. Solas, solas, it's, it's alone, and then we have Christ. Now, here's my question for you before we actually get to a text. Do you think that during those years preceding the Reformation, do you think that during those dark, dark years, those dark ages, that people spoke of Jesus? and spoke of the cross, and spoke of faith. What do you think? Yeah! You can, you, you, you can bet, bet your boots they did. Absolutely they did. And the church did too. They, they would tell people, believe in Jesus. They would say, Jesus is the King. They would say, Jesus died. Jesus rose again from the dead. They would carry crosses, even when sometimes when they would kill people. But it was all about, in one sense, on one level, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. You say, well, then what, what, what was wrong? That gets us to solus Christus. There's a world of difference between Christ and Christ alone. Right? It wasn't that people weren't talking about Jesus. They were saying, Jesus is good. You should believe in Jesus. Jesus is helpful. Jesus is the King. Jesus is the Savior. And if you want to get to heaven, make sure you don't miss Mass. And if you want to get to heaven, make sure you give us the amount of money we tell you to give. And if you want to get to heaven, make sure you let us do whatever we say. And make sure you do whatever you're told to do. That's Jesus and which is really no Jesus, because when we get to Christ alone, we get to the gospel, which is what we talk about here all of the time. But I won't say pardon me, because it's the best thing in the world to talk about. Christ alone is, is, is Jesus coming here, even though we're His enemies. And, and He lives a righteous life for us, obeys the Ten Commandments for us, and everything else. He dies a sinner's death for us, absorbing the wrath of God. We just saw it in Romans chapter 3. He propitiates, He satisfies the just wrath of God Almighty for us. He rises again from the dead for us in Romans 6. So that all who will believe on Him, Him and His finished work, will be saved, will have His righteousness, will be justified. Now who did all the work? Christ did all the work. He did it all. That's why we read that text earlier in Hebrews. You read Hebrews chapter 7, you read Hebrews chapter 9, Hebrews chapter 10, and it's all about Christ being our perfect, faithful high priest who died for sins once for all. And there's a world of difference about talking about Jesus and saying Jesus is the Savior and saying He, in His work alone, saves. Huge. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. 1 Peter 3.18, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26 to 27, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12, John 19.30, Romans 3.25. Let's just look at the one text, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. And as you're turning there, it's toward the end of your Bible. If you're new to the Bible, come back next week. We'll just be in Romans. <laughs> it's simpler. 
Uh, you can look at the table of contents. But as you're turning to 1 Peter chapter 3, James Montgomery Boyce, one of my favorite writers, said this, No merit on the part of man, no merit of the saints, no works of ours performed either here or later in purgatory can add to his completed work. And he's talking about what was being articulated in solus Christus. Boyce goes on to say, According to the Reformer, salvation has been accomplished once for all by the mediatorial work of the historical Jesus. His sinless life and substitutionary atonement alone are sufficient for our justification. And any quote-unquote gospel that fails to acknowledge that or denies it is a false gospel that will save no one. And the reason he says, by the way, Boyce says the historical Jesus is because he's acknowledging this sufficiency of Jesus is tied to his historic work on this earth, on the cross, and in his resurrection, not some sort of contrived, ongoing, perpetual work in the Mass. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 is better than voice any day. <laughs> Listen to this. For Christ also died for sins. Best part. Once for all. That, 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 that is the solace part. That is the, the sufficiency part. Once for all. He's talking about his historical work of redemption. Not some ongoing contrived thing. Once for all, the just for the unjust, so that He, Christ, might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. How good is that? Once for all. And you know, this sermon could be a negative kind of sermon. Because we're saying, that is wrong. But you know what? Don't let it just be negative. Let it be positive. Christ alone? Christ did all for us? How great is that? That's the basis of my assurance. That's the basis of my confidence. That's the basis for everything in my life. That is what I want to live for. That is what I want to die for. Jesus Christ, my enemy. Read Romans 5. I'm the, I'm the cosmic rebel rebelling against Him. And He loves me anyway and comes here and lives for me anyway and dies for me anyway and rises again for me anyway. And based upon what He has done and what He and He alone has done, I can be saved? I can be the friend of God? You can be the friend of God? That is one trippy thing. That is downright amazing. Solus Christus. I will go to my grave, I pray. Loving Christ is my sufficient, unique Savior who did it all for me. And I pray I will go to my grave lovingly communicating that to anyone and everyone I can ever get my hands on. And I pray that you and I both will go to our grave not just with those things, but also being what we need to be. And that is not just willing to be the pillar promoting it, but the Bible also says we as a church need to be the support defending it. Because we're talking about the glory Christ. If it's Christ plus Pat, Christ gets glory, maybe even most of it, and I get some. And we know that that is unacceptable to God. That's as if to say, Christ is God and I'm God. There's only one God, He gets all the glory. When we say Christ plus what we do, in effect, we are practicing polytheists. When we say salvation is in Christ and our church membership or whatever it might be, we in effect are practicing polytheists. We believe in many gods. First and foremost, the God you look at in the mirror. If there's only one God, God gets all the glory. And if we are sinners who have rebelled against Him, no one does good, no, not one. Romans chapter 3 as we've been seeing. The only way to be consistent and say there's only one God, which the Bible claims from the very beginning, is to say, well, anyone who is saved is saved solely by the work of God. Someone far wiser than I made this observation about Solus Christus and the Reformation. Listen to this quotation. The whole struggle of the Reformation was simply the struggle for the right interpretation of the cross. It's hmm. a little something to chew on. Oversimplified, yes. 
But you know, on a lot of levels, that's pretty good. It all comes down to the question, did he or didn't he? As the song says, full atonement? Can it be? And Christians say, yes! Full atonement. That's what 1 Peter says, in effect. If you're wondering what I'm doing, I'm editing. (laughs) Please, when you talk to people about Christianity, talk to them about the cross. Talk to them about Christ's atonement. Don't try to explain to them that Christianity... And the way to be Christian is to follow Jesus. If the way to be a Christian is to follow Jesus, then Jesus should have come here. Period. He came here, lived for us, and died for us on the cross and rose again from the dead. Please get the gospel right. And the gospel right is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Christ, His life, His death, and His resurrection. It wasn't that long ago where this hit me like a freight train. I've spoken of this one other time, I think. I was at a church service. About a thousand people there, at least. The guest speaker pastors probably the largest church in the state, I would guess. And if you were to ask him, did you just preach the gospel, I'm sure he would say yes. If you were to ask other people there, as I heard one pastor say, wasn't that a great presentation of the gospel? They would say yes. A friend of mine's wife was there. She had the best commentary on the whole thing. Afterward, sadly, with a broken heart, she said, he forgot the cross. There is no cross and there is no gospel. And you just preached a false gospel. This is a great time for us to look at history, yes, but to look at now, here, where we live and function and dialogue with people on all different levels. Solus Christus, Christ alone is our Savior. Please get that. Please. Let's move on to another, number three. The third non-negotiable of biblical Christianity recovered at the Protestant Reformation is sola gratia. Sola gratia, where we get salvation by grace alone. It is alone grace. And we don't need to say much about this because, in effect, I've been talking about it. Because if salvation is in Christ alone, then there's nothing you can do to merit God's salvation, so it is by grace alone. We don't need to talk much about it today either because we've been in in Romans. We've been in Romans 1, 2, and 3 for a long time now. And we've been seeing that it's not by works. It's by grace. Grace means free gift. God freely gives His free grace to those He chooses to give it to. We don't initiate and say, Hey God, throw me the life raft. Read Romans 1, 2, and 3. We're not doing this. Read Ephesians 2. Dead in trespasses and sins. We're not doing this. God's not looking to see who's waving the arm and then He's going to be gracious to them. That's not grace. That's works. That's merited. God gives us salvation even though we don't deserve it and we do nothing to merit it. If that doesn't make sense, go back to Romans 1, 2, and 3a, and you'll say, oh, I guess salvation has to be by grace because no one does good, no, not one. But let's look at one passage, though. Romans chapter 3 would be wonderful. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 would be wonderful. Go to Titus chapter 3, if you would. 
And let's see, salvation is in fact sola gratia. It is by grace and by grace alone. Just to make sure we put a text with this and then we'll move ahead. This is what stirs our hearts. This is what makes us so thankful because we were under the illusion that we would do it. And then we read through Romans and it's, you know, one devastating blow to the midsection after one devastating blow to the midsection after another. And finally, it's the knockout. And so salvation has got to be by grace. If salvation isn't only by grace, then no one is ever going to be saved. And so we're so thankful for that. But Titus 3 is a great text that deals with it. And let's go ahead and read in verse 5. It says, He saved us. Notice who the op- acting agent is. You know, we didn't save ourselves. We didn't cooperate with God. He, God, saved us. That's all we need to read. I mean, if that's true, those three words are true, then salvation is by grace alone. He saved us. Right? Titus 3, 5. Not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, which would be a good synonym for grace here, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. But here's where it gets explicit in verse 7. So that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. There it is. It's only by grace. Now some smart Alec is going to say, it doesn't say grace alone. And I have to say, you're right. It doesn't. But even though I went to public schools, when you read that, do you ever conclude in a bazillion years that it's by grace and what you do? Never. Never. Because then grace isn't really grace anyway. And the context would have us to know that it's nothing you do. So it has to be by grace. And it would have to be by grace alone. Same thing we saw recently in Romans chapter 3. We see it in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 couldn't be clear. It's by grace and it's only by grace. In talking about this issue, theologians refer to Christian theology of this sort as monergism. Word for the day, maybe. Mono, where we have one. I'm a motocross guy. Mono shock. One shock in the back. That doesn't help you, I don't know. (laughs) Monergism One working. That is to say, to quote biblical words, He saved us. It doesn't get more monergistic than that. We didn't save ourselves. We didn't work it out together. Cooperating with grace. He saved us. Right? It's monergism. We're not working together with God to be saved. He saved us. It's only by grace. It's not synergism where we work together. It's all of Him. Well, let's move on. Number four. Sola fide. Faith alone. Sola fide. Faith alone. The Reformers called this the material principle of the Reformation. And that's because it's the very substance of what a person must believe. The very matter of what a person must believe to get the gospel right. In fact, it became sort of theological shorthand for everything we're talking about. How do you explain biblical Christianity to someone? Well, it's theological shorthand. Even though you need to elaborate, absolutely, you could say, we believe in justification by faith alone. And you've got to explain in Christ's sufficient work alone. And it's only by grace alone, founded upon the authority of Scripture alone, which ultimately is to the glory of God alone. But you want to abbreviate all of these? It's sola fide. It's faith alone. Because if Christ did it all... What do we do? Before God, 
We, we throw ourselves in Him at His mercy and we depend upon Him to carry us as our substitute, right? It has to be by faith. How do we make it personal? How do we incorporate this for ourselves? We, we just depend upon Him, which is a word for trust. We believe in Him. Sola fide. Martin Luther said the church cannot exist for one hour apart from believing in sola fide. He also said it's the doctrine upon which the church stands or falls. He could have said it's the doctrine upon which any individual stands or falls. When you talk to someone and you say, you're, you're going to go to heaven? You plan to go to heaven? You're a Christian? Yeah. I just asked this to someone a week ago. What do you base that on? I'm trying to get my life together. Or someone else is going to say, I... Go to Omaha Bible Church. Or I am a Roman Catholic. The Bible is going to have us believe. He did it all. We need to gain His merits. How do we do it? Faith, trust, dependence. Why don't you go ahead and see this in Scripture and then I want to say one more thing about it and we'll move on to the last point. If you, if you turn to Romans chapter 4, this is one of those things I didn't even have to write down any scriptures in my notes because it's all over the place. We've seen it in Romans chapter 3 recently. It's only by faith, only by faith, only by faith because it's only in Christ, only in Christ, only in Christ and it's only of grace and if it's only of grace then it has to only be by faith. It can't be by works. But in Romans chapter, oh, we even saw it in chapter 3 where it said in verse 28, for we maintain that a man is justified, how? By faith apart from works of the law. It doesn't say faith alone, but it certainly says faith alone. Because if it's by faith apart from works, guess what? It's by faith and faith alone. Couldn't be clearer than that. Same thing comes up in verse 30. And then in chapter 4, he uses Abraham and David as examples. And I won't take the time to read the text. You could read it on your own. But I've underlined and highlighted so many times I'm about to do for a new Bible just because of what I've done to Romans 4. But just listen where it talks about how it's all of faith. We see in chapter 4, verse 4. Now the one who works, his wage is credited as favor, but as what is due. And then it says in verse 5. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. And then in verse 6, we see the crediting again. Verse 9, faith. Verse 11, faith. Verse 11, believe. Verse 12, faith. Verse 13, faith, 14, faith, 16, faith, 16, faith, 17, believed, 18, believed, 19, faith, 20, faith, 23, believe. We see it in chapter 5 as well, and it just goes on and on and on. The idea is, how in the world could you ever have righteousness? In light of Romans 1, 2, and 3, you never could. Believe in the righteous one. That's how you get it. That's where it comes from. Now, here's a quiz. This is an ethics quiz. Christian ethics. Does the Roman Catholic Church officially teach that salvation is by works? The question I'm not asking is how many of you have said to someone that the Roman Catholic Church does? As soon as you say that they do, you have compromised your ethics. You've spoken out of your ignorance and you've misrepresented them. In fact, you've slandered them. Don't do it. In fact, they've officially condemned all who would say you're saved by works. Let me put it another way. Does the Roman Catholic Church officially teach that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ? The answer to that is true, they do. You know where the rub comes? The rub comes with the sola. What they condemn is that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in the finished work of Christ alone. 
The sola is the issue. And it doesn't take a genius to figure out if it's by faith, grace, and Jesus plus my works, it's not by faith through grace and grace in Christ. So you're right. They do deny salvation by grace through faith in Christ, but not officially, not on the books. But practically, yes, because as soon as it's faith in Jesus and what I do, grace plus what my works are, work of Jesus and what I do, you've denied salvation by grace. You've denied salvation through faith. You've denied salvation in Christ. But I want you so badly to think about this and to be educated. Read more about it. Know what you're talking about before you speak of someone else the best you can. And have a big heart and be burdened to communicate that it is only of Christ, only of grace, only through faith. This is what Galatians defends as the gospel. And Galatians goes so far as to say, if it's faith in Jesus and what you do, and you say that, you are damned. That's what Galatians says. Read Galatians 1, 8 and 9 sometime. Pretty hardcore. That's Galatians. Roman Catholic Church, Council of Trent, still on the books. Still on the books. If you believe in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, you are damned. One of these things just doesn't belong here. And now it's time to not play a game. It's time to be dead serious. Anathema if you do. Anathema if you don't. Which one do you believe? You believe salvation solely and completely in Christ and in His finished work only by grace, only through faith? Council of Trent, still on the books, damns your soul. You believe in salvation by faith in Christ plus what you do? God Almighty damns your soul. Galatians. Well, it's a no-brainer. <laughs> How about it's all of Christ? How about He did it all? How lovely is that? How wonderful is that? You want to get rid of your psychoses and neuroses? You, you, you want to somehow have freedom in life and not be totally consumed and driven by guilt and manipulation? Throw off the shackles that say you've got to do all this stuff and maybe, oh, maybe after you die and somebody prays you out of purgatory, maybe someday you'll be right with God. It's no wonder you need to take Prozac. You should take it if you're not taking it. Or something. How freeing is the fact that Jesus Christ did everything for me. And there's nothing I can do because I'm a filthy sinner anyway. You know you are. I know that I am. As good as I can try to look on the outside. God saved me. This is amazing. This is the best thing in the absolute world. This is what the Bible says angels are mystified by. They long to look into the matter of salvation. It blows their cotton-picking minds that God would save sinners. Well, it's because He does it through the work of His Son. Folks, this is the best it gets. This is what Omaha Bible Church is all about. If you hate this, you hate Omaha Bible Church. And you hate me, and I'm so sad about it, and I don't want you to. But there's nothing more important than this. And we, as David Wells said, addressing a whole bunch of evangelicals, not the baseball player, the theologian, he said, folks, we are living in a fool's paradise. And I think that's true. That's why I'm perspiring. That's why I'm preaching my heart out. That's why I'm willing to take the risks even necessary in trying to communicate this message. We are living in a fool's paradise. Where as long as we don't know anything and we don't read anything and we don't educate ourselves, it's all good. Isn't it great that everybody's a Christian? 
And isn't it great that doctrine doesn't matter? Isn't it great that we can just all love Jesus? That's a fool's paradise. Showing biblical, historical, and theological ignorance. And I don't want that to be true of you. I don't want that to be true of me. You've got to know this stuff. We're talking about heaven and hell, eternity. We're talking about, here's the last point, final sola. Soli Deo Gloria. You know what we're talking about here? We're talking about the glory of God. That's why this is so important. That's why I'm willing to take the risks. Why would we do this? Why would we try to spend the time talking about these solas? Why would we uh, put forth so much effort? It's about this final sola. Soli Deo Gloria. Alone God glory. To God alone be the glory. That's where the, uh, the, the, the preceding four push us to. If you believe in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, based upon the authority of Scripture, guess what you're going to do? Be prideful? No, you're a sinner. <laughs> well, are you going to be arrogant? No. What you are going to do, it is a fact you're going to do this. If you really, really, truly believe you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in the finished work of Christ alone, you will do one thing, I promise you. And you will give glory to God alone. Because He did it all. And God is in the business of acting like God and looking for glory. I mean, you couldn't be more on the right track. You couldn't be more on the right track. Last passage to look at, and it's Ephesians chapter 1. If you go to Ephesians chapter 1, we'll just look at one passage where the Apostle Paul has got all this rattling around in his head. He's got figured out by now that salvation is only by grace. That's Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It's only through faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. He's got it figured out that it's only the work of Christ that saves. He's got all the solas figured out in his head. Oh, and by the way, the Apostle Paul's got it figured out that he's a sinner, dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2, 1, 2, and 3. Well, how do you think he's going to respond? He's going to respond with this full-orbed, intense, passionate praise because God did it all. I wonder sometimes why we don't give God such full-orbed, passionate praise. You know, a big clue would be maybe we don't believe in the solace. Because if we believed in the preceding four solas, we would be passionate about our praise to God in the final one, soli Deo Gloria. Well, Paul had it figured out. Let's take notes from Paul. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him in love, before Him. In love He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will. And then verse 6, you see it all spelled out clearly. To the praise of the glory of His grace. I love that. Which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. And we'll rudely interrupt Him and stop there. But don't forget verse 6. To the praise of the glory of His grace. If you get the gospel, that's your response. To the degree that you don't respond like that. You don't get the gospel. Next week we're going to be in Romans chapter 3. And then we're going to be in Romans chapter 4 for a while. Then we're going to be in Romans chapter 5 and 6 and 7 and 8 and 9 and 10 and 11 and 12 and 13 and 14 and 15 and 16. And then we're going to study a different book of the Bible. I don't know what it's going to be yet. And we're going to go through that book of the Bible and then another book of the Bible and another book of the Bible. And guess what we're going to talk about every time? Same stuff we talked about today. This really does end up being the heartbeat for everything. And we can praise God for that. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for what happened in history. Lord, may our faith not be tied to Luther or Calvin or Zwingli or Knox or any of those or even those who came before them. Our faith would be in Christ and in Christ alone. But we are very thankful for men and women who have come before us, who have been faithful and bold. And Lord, something will be said of us when we're gone. 
by our kids and by our grandkids and our great-grandkids and others who will come in the city of Omaha and stand for the gospel, Lord, may we not be examples of what not to do, but may we be unashamed of the gospel, clinging to the glory of Christ, boasting in Him and Him alone no matter what the cost, and to do so with great pleasure and fervency as we find joy in Your Son. Amen.